Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 26, 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, be reading verses 1 through 38. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of Yahweh has come to me And I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although Yahweh persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and his evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that Yahweh has given to you, and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them. Or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares Yahweh, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares Yahweh, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares Yahweh, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, Everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and, their, and the work of their hands. Thus says Yahweh the God of Israel, thus Yahweh the God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from Yahweh's hand and made all the nations to whom Yahweh sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants and his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, 
all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Then you shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more, because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares Yahweh of hosts. Therefore, you, sh- you therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, Yahweh will roar from on high, and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold, and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for Yahweh has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the furthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Well, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the well of the lords of the flock. For Yahweh is laying waste their pasture, and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of Yahweh. Like a lion he has left his lair, for their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on we sinners who deserve nothing more than the judgment than this text unfolds. I pray we will not see this as something distant, but the very thing we've been rescued from by the one who took the cup of your wrath on our behalf. And so grant humility now and fill our hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen. This chapter is a stout drink. It is all judgment. 200 proof. Or perhaps we should say it's 99.9% judgment. There is a glimmer of grace, but it's disguised as judgment itself. The grace that's in here comes as judgment. And that Grace can dress like judgment shouldn't be a surprise to us 
because the Proto-Evangelium, that the first preaching of the gospel itself, was grace dressed as judgment. Genesis three fourteen through nineteen is all judgment, the whole span of it. But the judgment of the serpent contains the implicit hope and salvation of man. Genesis three fifteen. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That word of judgment was grace. The disguise here is simply harder to see through. The judgment is thicker. But we shouldn't miss the implicit salvation for the explicit judgment. Because whenever salvation comes, it is certain to come as judgment. When salvation comes, it is certain to come as judgment. There has been sin, and in no way will God compromise His righteousness, His justice, His holiness. When salvation comes, it must come in such a way that sin is judged. I don't want you then to miss the salvation for the judgment, but I don't want you to assume the salvation either. Notice that virtually everyone in our text is judged. Virtually everyone comes under judgment. And so the question for you then, the question for us, is what legitimate grounds do we have for thinking that we will be exempt? Why do we think we won't face judgment? And if your response is, I'm not that bad, or I go to church, know this, those who are judged first in our text are those who went to church. They were the people of God. They were the ones who thought they were immune from the wrath to come, saying, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. That was their excuse. 1 Peter 4.17 tells us, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, the setting uh, is that Jeremiah receives this word in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, which is the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, verse 1. So once again, Jeremiah's prophecy is time-stamped, and it's time-stamped very specifically. And it's not only um, that it has this specific time-stamp, but this is a repeated one that Jeremiah uses. We see this fourth year referred to four times in Jeremiah. Now, two of them follow really closely uh, and, and are related to our text. They're all related, but uh, chapter 45, verse 1, and 46, and verse 2. You'll see how chapters 45 and 46 get tied into this later on. But the most significant that's uh, illuminating in, in a powerful way, but a way that you could miss, is the one that comes in chapter 36. It's in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign that... Yahweh instructs Jeremiah to put together a collected works volume of his prophecies. 23 years worth of ministry. Put it all down on a scroll. So Jeremiah's uh, titles weren't that popular as individual releases. So put them all together and see if the set sells any better. And then he instructs Baruch to go into the temple and to declare 
these words, to just start reading. 23 years worth of prophecies, start reading them. Now, uh, that this took some time is apparent because Jeremiah, we're told, received this instruction in the fourth year, and then we're told it's in the fifth year that Baruch goes into the temple to read the book. It took a while to collect all the prophecies and write them down on a scroll. Baruch shows up, he's reading, which being the fifth year means that this prophecy that came during the fourth year, highly likely it made the collection. So Baruch reads it, and the officials hear this, and they tell Baruch, you better go. And then they deliver the scroll to the king, who as it's read to him, takes a knife and cuts off those portions that have been read, and throws them into a fire. And I think if you were listening closely, you'll see the manifold ways that relates to this text. It'll become clear as we go along. Now, as to the audience, it was specifically all the people of Judah. It concerns them, verse 1, and so it was spoken to them, verse 2. And Jeremiah opens with recalling his ministry to date among them. For 23 years, he's acted as a prophet among the people of Judah. He has been a faithful prophet. The word came to him, and he spoke it. And he's done so to a people. To, he's been a faithful prophet. He, it came to him, he spoke it, and he's ministered among an unfaithful people. They heard they, it was proclaimed to them, and they didn't listen. Now, Jeremiah is often caricatured as the weeping prophet. And indeed, he cried, and not all his tears were admirable. But notice his persistence, his patience. 23 years, no one listens. And their guilt of not listening to Jeremiah for 23 years is compounded because that follows the ministry of a long line of prophets. Verse 4, you have, uh, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord, although Yahweh persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. So, uh, if, if verse 3 impresses you with the persistence of Jeremiah, verse 4 lets you know it's really the persistence of Yahweh that you should be in awe of at this point. Now, don't think then that Jeremiah is going on some kind of impatient rant. This isn't the parent losing their cool after a long day with unruly children. 23 years, unappreciated, and y'all have never listened to me. No, Jeremiah's words, verse 3, for 23 years, Jeremiah's words are, verse 1, Yahweh's words. For 23 years, you've ignored me, and you've ignored me on top of ignoring the prophets that Yahweh has been persistently sending to you all this time. There are words on top of words, on top of words, on top of words, and they are ignoring them. They're not listening. And the message that the prophets of old shared was one that we see Jeremiah speaking early in his ministry. It was one of commands and promises. The command, turn from your evil deeds. And the promise, if they do so, they'll dwell in the land, verse 5. The command, don't go after gods. The promise, God will not go after them. If you don't go after other gods, I won't go after you. Verse 6. 
And despite all this, despite all these words on top of words on top of words, his commands, his promises, despite all this, verse 7, they don't listen. And worse than this, they don't listen so that they might provoke him to anger with the work of their hands to their own harm. They are all virtually cutting off the scroll and throwing it into the fire as they're hearing it. Again, the word comes to them and they throw it into the fire. The word comes to them and they throw them into the fire. The only difference between them and Jehoiakim is he had opportunity to have them all gathered in a nice little bundle and do it in a shorter amount of time. So behold then the great sin of not listening. All sin is not listening. That is one way we could define sin. Sin is not listening. We reply though, but we don't do anything that bad. We don't do anything really bad. But the child who never listens, never does anything really bad, and he never listens, is just as exasperating as the child who does really bad, and perhaps occasionally listens. In fact, the child who does really bad has this in his favor, that he occasionally listens. When a child never listens, when he never listens, what this tells you is that all of his doing good is just as much an act of rebellion against you as any bad that he might occasionally happen to do. All of its rebellion, all of its dishonoring. God is speaking to all humanity. He's speaking to all humanity through creation concerning His power and His divinity, but man is not listening. And because of this, it's further revealed. God is further speaking. He's further adding this sentence to it. Not only am I powerful, not only am I worthy of all glory and honor and praise, but because you're not listening, judgment is upon you. Romans 1, 18-20. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the heavens declare the glory of God, and God doesn't whisper. It's not that there were other voices that that muffled everything out. God is declaring the voice is unavoidable. No one is without excuse. No one can say, I didn't hear you. He's spoken And he's spoken clearly so that none are without excuse. This is the voice of God that everyone ignores. All men ignore this voice. Theologians call it general revelation because it goes out generally. Everyone has access to it. No one is without excuse. We've all failed to listen. In addition to this, some ignore God's special revelation. And that was the particular crime of Judah. Israel, his redeemed people. They ignored not only the heavens, they ignored heaven. 
they, they not only ignored the, the general revelation of God that's mediated through creation, He has spoke to them out of the fire. He has entered into covenant. He has given them His prophets. They have ignored His voice. He has spoken to them in covenant and in love, in redemption and in blessing, in grace and in mercy, and still they ignore. And God has spoken to us now even more clearly in covenant and in love, in redemption and in blessing, in grace and in mercy, and still many ignore Him. The sin of not listening is further compounded for those who have grown up since the advent of Christ hearing the gospel. This is the great sin of not listening not only to general revelation, but special revelation, and not just special revelation, but special revelation coming to its climactic expression in the one who is the Word of God. And so Hebrews 10 warns, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you think you can escape judgment simply because you go to church or you don't do really bad things, the truth is that for those very reasons, your judgment will likely be all the more severe. God has spoken. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. Throw yourself in abandoned trust on Christ and Christ alone. And if you do not, know that you provoke the Lord to anger with the work of your own hands. To not listen to God's word of grace is a great sin that provokes His wrath. And so, as the Scripture so often admonishes, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. If you do not listen, wrath is as certain for you as it was for Judah. Verse 8, notice the shift from Yahweh's word to them, not only through Jeremiah, that will continue, but it's, it fades. It's not only through Jeremiah, but it's in reference to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is using himself as the reference point in this word from Yahweh that he's proclaiming. But in verse 8, Yahweh's voice comes to the fore, the prophet is eclipsed. Because Judah has not obeyed Yahweh's words, Nebuchadnezzar will come against them as his servant. It isn't that Nebuchadnezzar is an obedient servant, whereas they've been disobedient servant. It isn't that Nebuchadnezzar listens, whereas they have not listened. It's that Nebuchadnezzar's rebellion serves God. (laughs) Your rebellion doesn't ever work. It will only serve His purposes. God uses one rebel 
as a servant to, pub, to punish rebellious servants. He, he uses a rebel as a servant to, you, to punish those who were his servants who were rebelling. Nebuchadnezzar comes not only against Judah, we're told, but against the surrounding nations, verse 9. And an eerie silence will envelop all the land in the wake of God's wrath, verse 10. No voice of mirth, no voice of gladness, no bride and bridegroom. You won't hear the mill grinding, so it means production has been brought to a standstill. Lamps are not being lit. All will be a ruin and a waste. But it's here. And, and, and after following this description of just utter devastation, that there's this slight glimmer of grace disguised as judgment. In verses 11 through 14, the judgment on Judah and on the surrounding nations has an expiration date. Seventy years. They will serve Nebuchadnezzar for seventy years. Now don't reason from this. Ah, oh, so that's how it works. Uh, there's a, if you don't listen, don't worry. The, the, the bad response of the father won't last forever. If, if you don't listen, God will simply need to blow off some steam, and after that, he'll be cool again. Let him yell, he'll be in a good mood again in the morning. No, an entire generation passes away. God will, from the remnant, have a remnant, but it's not that that remnant is just getting off with some kind of discipline. Wrath and judgment is falling on this generation. The point is not that you only have to endure judgment for a time. The point is that God will judge all evil, even the evil that He uses to judge evil. That's the point of the duration. And so the faint glimmer of grace in this is that whenever you read into the next chapters and you see that when the 70 years is over, it's made explicit, God will bring His people back to the land. But here it's just, it's just understood, God will judge those who He's used to judge you. The faint glimmer is that God's promises to His people then will not fail. They have been faithless, He will remain faithful. After 70 years, Babylon will be judged, and the 70 years is, is a round figure. Whenever you, whenever you start looking at scholars, they all date it, not simply differently, they all date it in multiple different ways, each one of them. There are multiple ways of figuring out how the 70 years, and there's, it's, it's a rough figure, and 70 fits in in, in all kinds of different ways. So which one of them? The text is never explicit. We can't say for certain. But after 70 years, Yahweh will bring upon Babylon all the words that he's uttered against it in this book. This book which Jeremiah prophesied concerning the nations. Verse 13. The content that we've dealt with though in the book of Jeremiah so far has been heavily focused on Judah. There have been elements where it talks about judging Babylon or judging the nations, but it's been mostly focused on Judah. So what's this book that deals with the nations? Well, in chapters 46 through 51, we'll come to what's been regarded as the oracle 
against the nations, or the oracles against the nations. It opens in chapter 46 and verse 1 this way. The word of Yahweh that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. And this is where I said earlier that other reference to the fourth year of Jehoiakim plays in. These oracles came in the fourth year. In the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that would have been uh, widely used and disseminated during the time of Christ. In the Septuagint, chapters 46 through 51 come after verse 13. So the, the, this book concerning the nations and the judgment, it's that section of Jeremiah, chapter 46 through 51, and every nation that's dealt with here is basically, for the most part, spoken of in the oracle against the nations, and in those that we see in the oracle against the nations, every one of them are dealt with here, except Damascus is one that's added in those later chapters. So God will judge the nations. He will use one nation to judge these other nations. And then He will judge that nation. He judges Babylon, we're told, verse 14, by many nations making slaves of them. And then the following verses, in verses 15 through 38, pick up on the judgment of the nations and Babylon, and they expand it. They intensify it. The focus shifts from Judah and the nations being judged to the nations being judged and a slight mention of Judah. They will be made to drink of the cup of the wine of God's wrath. And in this cup, there is a sword. Three times the cup and the sword are linked together. So here in verses 15 through 16, we have the cup and then we have the sword. Verse 27, cup, sword. Verse 29, cup, sword. This cup has a sword in it. Now, how is Jeremiah going to make them to drink of the cup of the wine of God's wrath? Well, that Jeremiah was to have a ministry of international impact was clear from the beginning. And not only that he was to have that kind of ministry, but the way in which he was to have that kind of ministry was clear. Jeremiah 1, 9 through 12 Yahweh put out His hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. How is He over them? Because His mouth has been touched and Yahweh's words are in them. I've set you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And Yahweh said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The way that Jeremiah makes them to drink is by proclaiming the word of God that God is watching over to perform. We've already seen this in our text concerning Babylon, verse 13. I will bring up on that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied. Or verse 30. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them. So it's by the words that he's speaking that they're being made to drink of the cup of the wine of His wrath. And who are these nations? Well, the first, Judah, and then the surrounding nations, and then 
Babylon, and then it'll expand in language that's, that's everyone, all the nations. What most of these nations that are named have in common are their ties, their relationship to Judah. This is not just geographic, it goes further than that. Egypt was not only the land they had been redeemed out of, they were the crutch that they were trying to lean on. They were one place where they sought to find refuge. They were one kingdom that they hoped was rising again such that it would deal with the problem of Babylon. Uz, that land where Job resided, is the hardest of these nations to locate geographically. But from Lamentations 4.21, it suggests that it's near Edom. Edom, descendants of Esau, brother of Jacob. Moab and Ammon, descendants of Lot's incestuous relation with his daughters. Tyre and Sidon, those port cities that were to the north of Israel with whom they traded. It's where they got the lumber for the construction of uh, Solomon's temple and his, his uh, palace. Dedan, Tima, and Buzz, all Arabian oasis cities. Now, uh, it's not certain, but Dedan very well could have been established by the grandson of Abraham from his second wife, Keturah, who goes by that name. Uh, Genesis 25.1. Tima, established by... Tima, one of the descendants of Ishmael, Genesis 25, 15. Buzz, likely established by Abraham's nephew of that name, Genesis 22, 21. Concerning Arabia, one tribe that's mentioned in the oracles against the nations that we get to later in Jeremiah, uh, one of the nations there is Kedar, which is likely descended from Ishmael's son by that name. Although all these kingdoms are surrounding Judah, and they have some relation to her, all nations are being typified. I think that's clear. God will judge all the nations. All nations are being typified. A judgment yet to come is being anticipated by a judgment that has already come in this chapter. Phil Riken comments, It was the Olympics of divine judgment, and all the nations of the earth were there. All these nations have to drink of the cup of the wine of God's wrath, and it will then be passed to Babylon. And you see the same thing happening in Revelation. All the nations drinking of the wine of God's wrath, and that's ultimately signified with Babylon drinking of it. Now, if you have a translation other than the ESV, you might see that this ends not with Babylon. You might read Shishak. And, and you might even see that in your uh, footnote for the ESV. Shishak is a way of referring to Babylon using a very crude code known as Atbash, where you take the first letter of the alphabet and replace it with the last, the second letter with the second to the last, the third, so on, so that it'd be the equivalent of replacing A with Z, B with Y, and so on. Now, you're not going to fool a lot of people with that kind of code, um, and the context makes it pretty apparent who's being spoken of anyway with this. So what's the point? I think that this wasn't to disguise anything so much as it was to ridicule. Remember the, the deep history of Babylon? I think the, the idea is that in this 
drunken stupor, she will be a Babel, Shishak. No nation will be able to, to stomach this cup with a sword in it. Not even were it a circus nation comprised of sword swallowers, no skill, no power, no craft can evade this judgment. The nations are commanded by, by Jeremiah to drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall, and rise no more. And if they refuse, Jeremiah's response is, you must. We, we won't listen. You, when, you, can, you can ignore God's word of command. You cannot listen to that, in a, in a sense. But when it comes to His word of judgment, it is a must. You can't ignore it. And again, Riken says it well. When God serves the drinks, no one is allowed to be a teetotaler. Whenever Yahweh pours the cup, He makes the wicked drink it down to the bitter dregs. Psalm 75.8 In the hand of Yahweh there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The reason, giving, the reason given as to why they must is that Yahweh has made Jerusalem to drink of this cup, verse 29, and will not the nations? So judgment will begin at the house of Yahweh. But that isn't to make the, the wicked think, um, well, he's just going to deal with those people who ignored his special revelation. It will begin at the house of Yahweh, and for that reason, if it begins there, will it not extend to the earth? Let's return to 1 Peter 4.17 and pick up the next verse. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see the exact same logic. And then it goes on to quote Proverbs. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now because this is a, most, a must, Jeremiah is to prophesy against them all these words, verses 30 through 38, you shall prophesy against them all these words. And these words are that Yahweh's words will come as a roar. The lion of heaven will roar. It's peculiar, I think, that he roars from on high. This is not the roar simply of the, the one, the lion of the tribe of Judah who came as a lamb on his first advent. This is the ascended and risen Christ at the right hand of the Father, roaring. And He will roar against the sheep of His own fold. But then He will shout like those who tread the grapes. It's the imagery of this really loud celebratory noise. But it's not the joyful elements there. It's just saying, here's the volume kind of level. He will speak against the nations such, with, with such volume that what it's the equivalent of is those festivals whenever you're treading the grapes in joy. The sound will uh, resound to the ends of the earth, to all nations, to all flesh, verse 31. And you see again that our text, although it's speaking of a judgment that we know to have happened in the past, is something to anticipate. Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation. A great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. It's a judgment 
verse 31, concerning an indictment that he has against the nations. It's a judgment wherein those who are judged shall extend from one end of the earth, verse 33, to the other. This cup is likened to a storm. It's a tempest. The dead will be regarded in the wake of the storm like dung on the ground. Nothing to be done with their bodies. And so the shepherds are to cry out. They're to wail. They're to roll in ashes because they will be slaughtered. They will fall to the ground like a clay pot and be shattered. Verses 34 through 35. The leaders having no refuge for themselves will find their pastures to be laid waste, their folds devastated, verse 36, and all of this because of the fierce anger of the lion of heaven who will roar against them. The judgment of God is inevitable, it is inescapable, and it will fall on every sin. The judgment of God will fall on every sin. Every injustice, every iniquity, every idolatry. And you see this in that Babylon, who God uses to judge sin, is then judged for her sin. Every sin will be judged. Judgment cannot be evaded. It has to be born. We have no hope that our sins are going to be swept under the rug. There is no hope that our sins will be ignored. The only hope we have... For having not listened to Yahweh, the only hope we have is that somehow, some way, judgment would fall on our sin and not on us. How can that be? Well, the cup of God's wrath is a common metaphor throughout Scripture. The cup of the wine of God's wrath. In Isaiah 51, Yahweh promises grace to His people by judgment. He promises grace by judgment saying... Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who pleads the cause of His people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. He takes it away. I've taken away from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hands of your tormentors. So there is a salvation by judgment. It happens as he takes the cup out of their hand and gives it to those who are tormenting them. But the question still arises, okay, but what about their sin? What about their judgment? They should drink of the cup. And there's no end to drinking of that cup. We find the answer in a garden where the only one to ever listen perfectly takes this cup, saying, If possible, let this cup pass from me. But Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus took the cup of the wine of God's wrath, not because He failed to listen, but because we didn't listen. He took that cup and He drained it down to the dregs, bearing judgment for His people. And because judgment fell on the just one for the sins of the unjust, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Saints, judgment, 
the very judgment we're reading of has already fallen on this earth for your sins if you are in Christ. It's already been born. It's all your sins already judged, paid for. And it was not we who had to drink of that cup because our Lord took it and drained it down to the dregs on our behalf. And because He drank of it, and He rose, defeating death, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of our Father, He now extends to us the cup of salvation. And He promises to drink it with us in the kingdom after His judgment has dealt with the wicked and He's made all things new, giving to us the promised inheritance where we will dwell with Him in peace forevermore. No wrath, no cup of wrath, only the cup of fellowship and salvation, communing forevermore with our Lord. Let's pray. Father, praise be to you. What judgment we are due that your Son bore it in our stead. What grace, what mercy. That you remain holy and righteous and just, uncompromised in any way, fully glorious. And yet full of mercy and grace. What wisdom, what wonder, Father, there is in this gospel. Of salvation by judgment. And so move us, Father, to gratitude and joy. Father, convict us of our not listening and give us a, a greater tenderness that we might tremble and be broken and contrite before your word. And Father, for any here that are not your own, they're not, they're not professing at this point, we pray that they are yours in Christ that their judgment was borne by Him, and that You would grant them new hearts that would believe this morning. Grant them repentance and faith. That they wouldn't harden their hearts today if they hear Your voice. In the name of Christ we ask this. Amen.